Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. Letters from the Village by Ian Gordon Of all the distant objects on Federal Hill, a certain huge, dark church most fascinated Blake. It stood out with a special distinctness at certain hours of the day, and at sunset the great tower and tapering steeple loomed blackly against the flaming sky. It seemed to rest on especially high ground, for the grimy façade, and the obliquely seen north side, with sloping roof and the tops of great pointed windows, rose boldly above the tangle of surrounding ridge-poles and chimney-pots. Peculiarly grim and austere, it appeared to be built of stone, stained, and weathered with the smoke and storms of a century and more. H. P. Lovecraft, The Haunter of the Dark To reflect upon what I now know to be true seems almost trivial, but the journey, and the subsequent revelation, is of such significance that I feel the penning of this manuscript is the only way to make sense of it all. But it isn't for my benefit. It is for he who is to follow in my footsteps. And let me assure you, my friend, your cause is the continued existence of the human race. Or so I've been told. But I digress. Allow me to start at the beginning. The letters began a few days after I returned from a September trip to the northeast. I had been based in Northumberland primarily though one of those seven days away took me up the coast into Scotland. A local in Eymouth, a shopkeeper with a penchant for Coltsfoot Rock, recommended a hidden gem, a natural harbour near Coburn's Path, by the name of Cove. A sucker for seaside delights, I drove the thirteen miles or so along the coast until I found the place almost by accident. I parked the car and ambled down the stony pathway in the direction of the harbour. Traversing a shadowy tunnel, necessary to access the harbour proper, I gawped at the pick-marks on the rock. If only those long-dead miners had known of the role they had unwittingly played in determining my fate. But in the end, I suppose the tunnel, the picturesque beach, and the balmy ocean are of little relevance here. What is relevant is the strange sense of homecoming I felt upon reaching Cove. At the time, standing alone on the sand, surrounded by towering cliffs, I didn't really notice it. It was triggered afterwards, having ascended the rocky track back to the car. Overlooking the bay, I noticed the wistful expressions of the faces, comprising a memorial commemorating the East Coast fishing disaster of 1881. One of the figures was pointing out to sea— and although I was sure that the arm of the statue had been extended for many years, I felt as though it was gesturing for my benefit. Perhaps there was something I had overlooked down by the harbour. And so, once again, I descended the stony trail, and returned to the water's edge. Indeed, I had missed something. Among the seaweed and the deadwood, I noticed an old briefcase. I dragged it ashore. It was assuredly ancient, as revealed by the faded leather. Quite possibly, it had been at sea for decades. 
Regardless, I was eager to explore its contents. Inside, I discovered a stack of photographs. Most of the images were entirely blank due to water damage. Three of the images, however, were fused together. A careful peeling apart revealed detailed pictures, their sepia tone suggestive of a time and place. Several faces in those damp frames were somehow familiar to me. In photograph number one, township, I'll call it, was a village scene. Standing in the foreground were a number of colourful townhouses and cottages, behind which a large mound rose above. Atop the mound stood what appeared to be a massive church or cathedral. Its true size was difficult to ascertain, as its lofty pinnacles ascended beyond the boundary of the frame. The second photograph, matches is what I wrote on the back, revealed a wooden table filled with typical household items. A Timothy Whiteson Taylor's matchbox was the only identifiable item among the clutter, which, if nothing else, served as a means to approximate the age of the photograph. According to my research, and considering the pristine condition of the matchbox, I estimated the photograph was taken in the early seventies. Photograph number three—old friends, I'll refer to it now—featured four familiar faces. From left to right, Simon Drinkwater, a fellow I went to school with, David Tusk, a skinny carpenter my father had worked with in the nineties, a red-headed chap I was absolutely certain was my grandfather, Alan Anforth, and the diminutive Lorraine Cowell, another absent friend from my school days. The picture was problematic for me on several levels. Firstly, if the shot was indeed taken in the early seventies, then my school friends, presently some thirty years of age, couldn't possibly have attended such a shoot. Secondly, my grandfather certainly wouldn't have been the age he is today in the shot. And lastly, the likelihood of such an image existing in the first place, and subsequently falling into my possession, was very doubtful indeed. But there it was, weathered by time. Returning to the car, I crossed paths with an elderly lady walking a dog. The terrier wasn't too interested in my scant frame, but out of sheer politeness I greeted the woman with a stock pleasantry along the lines of, It's gorgeous down there. In return, she smiled, and muttered something I still to this day recall with perfect clarity. It's God's country. She built it so we could rise again. Just the rambling of a good Christian? But all this is just a prelude to what, as I stated, began several days later. The first letter arrived on September 27, 2015, in a tarnished envelope, with my name, Martin Menkin, scrawled across the front in neat cursive. There was no return address overleaf. Curiously, the envelope was stamped with a pink Philimpia stamp, circa 1970, aligning perfectly with my assumptions regarding the age of the second sea-weathered photograph. It's also pertinent to add that the postman wasn't in the habit of delivering mail at the weekend. Carefully, I opened the letter, noting the stiffness of the paper, as though withheld by persons unknown for untold years. I unfurled the single piece of lime paper within, and studied it. It read as follows. Dear Martin, I hear you're thinking of paying us a visit. I can't encourage you enough. Dick's got a contractor working on Cotton Row. 
I assure you, the stones are as bold as Marie said they would be. You'd love it. It's got that sense of yesteryear you're always talking about. Think of the view over Ambleside from Royston's. Imagine that, and picture a mighty cathedral atop Todd Crag. Oh, Martin, you won't believe it. You simply have to see it with your own eyes. It's hardly surprising Maria's kept it a secret all this time. It's just unbelievable. When the forest welcomes you, it truly welcomes all of you, if you get my meaning. I do hope you'll visit. You won't want to leave. I promise you that. Love and wishes. Deirdre. I felt strange reading those words. There was a personality in that prose that resonated with me somehow. But it was illusory. It had to be. To fully appreciate the implications of that old note, I feel it's important to tell you, my friend, a little more about myself. I was born in 1983, back when fashion was absurd, and the synthesizer defined popular music. Never want to dwell on the merits of the present. I spent my formative years looking backwards, always backwards. Memories of intimate moments were exquisitely powerful, and consistently outweighed the sensations of the present. This feeling was amplified as I entered puberty, and further still as I achieved adulthood. Relationships were fiery, and, poetically I suppose, were consistently extinguished by the gusts of the present. If I were to sum up my life experience in a single word, it would be this. Melancholy. And so the letter, that simple, tattered offering from the past, pulled at my heartstrings, imploring me to pursue its shadowy suggestion, through untold passages of time and worlds unknown. I felt as though I'd been given the key to a hidden kingdom, another dimension, a realm in which the romantic fantasies and dreamy escapades of a man out of time were tangible, albeit forgotten. Then came the second letter, lending further credence to my absurd fancies. It too was signed, Deirdre. The name didn't mean a thing to me. But again, there was something in her handwriting that struck a chord. It read as follows. Dear Martin, we're so very happy to be hosting you at last. You'll be staying at Ivy Cottage. It's the blue cottage overlooking the brook. The access road is a little tricky to find, so we'll send Dick to meet you in Wooler. If we say October 2nd, 12pm, I hope that works. The end of Station Road should suffice, by the water. I can't wait to see you, old friend. Take care till then. Love and wishes. Deirdre. The letter wasn't dated, though it was October 1st when I received it, leaving me fewer than twenty-four hours to contemplate the appointment. I felt an irrational desire to drive to the Northumberland village of Wooler, on the off-chance it was indeed intended for me. But how could it be? The name and address was simply a coincidence, wasn't it? But in the end, I didn't make the journey. Instead, I sat and pondered the letters and the curious faded photographs from the water-damaged briefcase. There were twenty-two images in total. I wondered whether any of the remaining nineteen, excluding township, matches, and old friends, could be improved in some way. Despite my best efforts, including the digital manipulation of eighteen of the images, 
I was about to conclude that the remaining photographs were beyond enhancement. But the nineteenth, as luck would have it, had something to offer. A minor detail, really, but fortuitous nonetheless. It was a signpost. It read, Welcome to Nunwich. Nunwich. Was this the mysterious village Deirdre's letters were alluding to? The hamlet, in which that tattered photograph revealed in sepia tones, quaint cottages and a striking cathedral? I searched for the elusive town on the web, when my exhaustive searches yielded nothing in the locales of Northumberland and the Scottish borders, I studied the old ordnance survey maps my parents kept in perpetuity. No nunnage. I discussed the matter with family and friends, posted queries on internet forums, but still, nunnage was nowhere to be found. Was the village overseas? Possibly, if one entertained the idea that the strange briefcase had been carried across the North Sea from continental Europe. But had it? Having missed that October 2nd appointment with Dick, I brushed aside both the concept of Nanich and of the peculiar, parallel life I secretly longed for. And then, the third letter arrived. I noticed the difference immediately. The penmanship on the envelope was rough and impatient, premonitory of the disappointment scrawled within. Again, I opened the letter carefully, mindful of the ripened paper's delicacy. I wanted to be convinced of the letter's authenticity as a token of the past, but I couldn't help but liken the mean of that discoloured paper to the tea-stained treasure maps I had baked in the oven as a child. Deirdre's third letter read, Martin, I'm disappointed. We're all disappointed. There's room in the sky well for twelve. Are you asking us to take the plunge without you? Dick says he'll give you another chance. But I have to tell you, Simon and Lorraine have all but given up on you. They say you don't care, that you've given up. The defence cannot operate with eleven. We need you. Marie doesn't trust outsiders as it is. Please, please, don't let us down again. Let the verse serve as a reminder. When she fell from the sky, she shattered the stratosphere. Like rain she poured, as life we formed. When she fell from the sky, she lived to climb again. She built the well, and now we rise again. The wall of vines, Martin. We'll climb it together. October 17th, 12 noon. Dick will be waiting. Same place. Please, don't let us down. Deirdre. The letter chilled me to the bone. Not only were Simon and Lorraine, the faces of the third photograph, mentioned by name, but lines of the included verse were reminiscent of the cryptic words proffered by the dog-walker back in Cove. It's God's country. She built it so we could rise again. Who on earth was she? It was October 15th. I don't know why, but I wanted to make the journey. It's assured that strange things happen in these lives we live, though the rational mind tells us that synchronicity is nothing more than coincidence. But I'd never been one to shy away from superstition. I worship the idea of the weird and wonderful entering my life. I wanted to pursue it to its end, even if that end was foreseeable and ultimately mundane. Who was it? that said the destination is unimportant, 
It's the journey that counts. And so, I decided to hit the road. Hopeful a local or two in Wooler might have heard of what was presumably a ghost town, the village of Nanich. If not, perhaps the aforementioned Dick would be there to meet me at noon. At the time, I lived in the northwest of England, in a small, historic hamlet nestled in the shadow of the West Pennine Moors. The drive to Northumberland was some three hours by car, and, a lover of northern England's majestic heaths and dales, I, as was my preference, opted for the scenic route. That was the morning of October 17th. I was determined to reach Wooler before noon. I pulled into town just after 10 a.m., and parked in the centre, just off High Street. The quiet town of Wooler was especially tranquil. The shops, the daily apothecary, butchers, and general store were all closed, but the post office appeared to be open, and so I entered, intent on broaching the subject of Nunwich. The clerk, an elderly lady with a grimace like a corkscrew, tipped her head in my direction as I approached. Despondent, and in muted, disgruntled tones, she claimed she'd never heard of the place, her certainty the result of being married to a member of the Northumberland County Historical Society. How convenient! Abandoning my line of inquiry, I stepped back onto the chilly street, gazing in a northerly direction. A dog-walker approached, a senior gentleman in a beige overcoat, an overweight Jack Russell close at his heels. Quizzing the old fellow, who was just as nonchalant as the lady in the post office, he misheard my pronunciation of Nunwich. Dunwich? he croaked. I assured the man I was not in search of Dunwich. Traversing Church Street and the path, Ramsey Lane and Oliver Road, encounters with members of the general public were fleeting, though one exchange with a youngster on a bike at the top of Broomy Road left a lasting impression. I collared the boy as he emerged from an anonymous-looking lane. Uh, Nunwich? was his response to my question. The place in the mist? But he was unable to elaborate, as something to my rear apparently caught his attention and compelled him to flee. Despite my efforts, I was unable to keep up with him, as the rusty old bicycle carried him away at speed. The time was slipping away. My watch read 11.46. My meet-and-greet with Dick was imminent, if it was my meet-and-greet. And so, I returned to the car, and headed in the direction of Station Road. Stepping away from the parked car at 11.56, I made my way to the banks of Wooler Water. The area had been wet of late, and as such the brook was engorged, roaring by me uncharacteristically. You see, I had visited Wooler twice before, in the summer months, and had found the brook to be rather quaint. The villagers, too, in previous visits, had been more welcoming, and had never minced words. There was something odd about them this time round, and I couldn't quite put my finger on it but if I were to pluck a word out of the air to describe the experience, I'd once again choose homecoming. For somehow, the situation was suggestive of some inexplicable convergence at my expense. Noon came and went, along with a number of intermittent showers, forcing me to seek shelter beneath the protective limbs of an oak by the river. There had been no sign of Dick, not that I had ever really expected there to be 
but my dash for cover had revealed something. Wedged between two curiously placed stones by the trunk of the tree was an envelope. I recognized the handwriting upon it immediately. It was Deirdre's. As before, the name scrawled there was mine. I quickly drew the logical conclusion that it hadn't been there long. Returning to the car, I proceeded to open the letter, the sound of rain on the aluminium roof adding to the sense of anticipation. Deirdre's familiar cursive glared up at me. It read, Martin, Dick is a little concerned about the weather in Wooler, so he's heading out a little earlier to leave this letter for you. It's difficult to explain, but if the rain is falling, the road to Nanich is practically impossible to traverse. I beg of you, take this letter, check into the Black Bull, and await further instructions. I hope you have made it this far, old friend. Remember, you are number twelve, and we will always think of you that way. Yours, Deirdre. My journey wasn't over after all, but I felt assured somebody was playing games with me. Had it all started in Cove? That bloody briefcase? Perhaps it had, but it didn't matter. I was a player in the game, and I wanted to see it through to its conclusion. The Black Bull was, and still is to my knowledge, a seventeenth-century public house on Wooler's High Street. I made my way there, and was satisfied with it as an appropriate place to sit and wait out what had become a rather tumultuous storm. I entered the pub, having escaped the worst of the downpour, and positioned myself at the bar. I ordered a blueberry cider. Attempts to engage the barman in conversation were largely unsuccessful. So, instead, I retired to a booth, keen to avert the penetrating glare of the elderly punters, each of them eager to assess the interloper. Eventually, having grown tired of the clandestine whispering and surreptitious eyeballing, I followed through on Deirdre's suggestion to check into the hotel, and decided to await further instructions in one of the rooms upstairs. It was quiet up there. I gazed out onto High Street, watching the hustle and bustle of the town's denizens. At around four p.m., I drifted off. When I awoke, I immediately glanced at the clock beside the bed. It displayed 6.45 p.m. It was dark outside, giving license to the oppressive glare of dim, yellow street lamps. Approaching the window, I glanced across the street. The storm had ceased, and the town was deserted. There was an eerie stillness about the place. Heading downstairs into the pub, I was surprised to find the place empty, though the lights were on and a few of the tables still held the remnants of pub grub and pint mugs. Peculiar. I proceeded out onto High Street through the open door, and again came upon that desolate scene—the glare of dim street lamps and the subtlest vapour hanging in the air. Looking north in the direction of Glendale Road, I noticed a figure at the junction of the two streets. It was signalling me with a wave of its hand. Could this be the elusive Dick? Noting no other signs of life on the deserted thoroughfare, I headed towards the figure as it retreated onto Glendale Road. I proceeded a mere twenty paces in order to reach the junction, but was shocked to discover that the shadowy character had continued several hundred paces or more along the road, 
and was now little more than a blot on the horizon. I followed. This game of cat and mouse persisted for what felt like an eternity, until eventually I found myself standing at the end of a mist-veiled, tree-lined highway. The trees towered interminably into the sky, and I could barely discern the canopy in the fog. The figure had disappeared, leaving me quite alone. Undeterred by the bewildering situation in which I found myself, I stepped forth into the gathering darkness of the unmarked road. I followed that highway for what felt like hours, the scenery black and unchanging as I progressed. Then, quite suddenly, an incredibly familiar signpost met my eyes, a board bearing the words, Welcome to Nunwich. I'd made it. The elusive village of Nunwich, under a cloud of mist. And so my guide must have been Dick, though his indefinable nature had left a sizable thorn in my mind. If this whole thing was an elaborate ruse of some sort, where were the other perpetrators? Practical jokes require an audience, do they not? Witnesses? The culprits were insistent upon keeping themselves at a safe distance. But why? The sun had started to rise, spilling its warm, crimson hues onto the mysterious township, threatening to banish the early morning fog. Like Wooler, Nanich was completely deserted, utterly devoid of life. Then, beyond the wispy clouds, I saw the colourful cottages as mentioned by Deirdre in the first letter, Cotton Row, and there was Ivy Cottage at the far end my supposed abode. I continued, wandering amongst curious statues of men and women, all pointing towards something as of yet unseen, their posture strikingly similar to those of the monument I'd obeyed back in Cove. As the sun rose higher in the sky, the remaining clouds of fog dissipated entirely, revealing the heart of the village, the church or cathedral on the mound the foundations of which I had glimpsed on Polaroid, the grandeur of which had been proclaimed in Deirdre's first letter. I studied the outline of the structure, its numerous spires clawing at a sky not beyond its reach, threatening to pierce the stratosphere itself. I followed the topmost pinnacle to its zenith, my neck twisting in an attempt to behold it in its entirety. The tower was otherworldly, I thought. It certainly wasn't of Northumberland. If it truly stood within the quiet forests of northern England, how could this Marie, or whoever she was, have kept its presence a secret? It seemed impossible. It was not of this earth. Not of this earth. The phrase went round and round in my mind as I tried to process the vision, from the smoothness of the black stones comprising its exterior to the ethereal and unearthly presence it commanded. The cathedral was both awe-inspiring and terrifying, and I was hesitant to approach that monstrosity. I wanted to know more about Nunwich and its former inhabitants, if, in fact, the term former applied, and so I set out to investigate. Initially, my search of the village yielded little. I wandered from empty townhouse to deserted cottage in vain. 
The dwellings had been abandoned in what appeared to be an orderly manner. Kitchen surfaces had been wiped clean, and ornaments and other personal items had been safely stowed away in cupboards. But documentation pertaining to the identities of the mysterious occupants was nowhere to be found. Photographs and portraits were entirely absent, too. It was upon entering Ivy Cottage, however, that I discovered the true nature of the reclusive cult I, or my namesake, had been invited to join. The cottage, a quaint stone structure with traditional sash windows and a thatched roof, was accessed through a small oak door. I stooped as I entered, narrowly avoiding the lintel. The entrance led directly into a galley kitchen, where upon the worktops I discovered a handwritten booklet. The book contained information regarding what was assuredly a cult of the most unusual nature. The first page was a sort of members' index, including, amongst others, the familiar names Alan Anforth, Lorraine Cowell, Simon Drinkwater, Deirdre Johnson, and David Tusk. But it was the twelfth name that sent a shiver down my spine. My name, Martin Menkin. I flicked cautiously through the pages, some thirty or so in total, observing rules of sect and curious diagrams detailing the procession of the spheres. I saw crude sketches of reptilian creatures, often engaged in writhing, bestial activities with human men and women, entirely unclothed, labelled as the children of the sky-well. The contents of that leather-bound booklet were disturbing, to say the least, especially so, when my gaze fell upon the final page, a detailed depiction of a rectangular opal pool, surrounded by twelve naked figures bent in prayer. The caption below it read, Humble are the few who rush to her aid. Accompanying the booklet was another faded letter. Martin, be humble. Leave your clothes and possessions behind. We await you upstairs. Yours, Deirdre. To decipher the enigma, I knew I had little option but to climb the mound. Upstairs, of course, referred to the church, that dark, monolithic behemoth ever present in the back of my mind. Few moments in life prepare us for what is to follow, yet, even when the message is clear and the way has been marked, it is still much too easy to remain oblivious. And that was what I had become—ignorant. I felt like an automaton, straying blindly into the fray, unprepared for the dangers so clearly outlined upon the pages of that strange, handwritten booklet. But regardless of the risks, there were answers up there, awaiting me in the lofty heights of that precipitous tower. And so I returned to the deserted streets, and headed in the direction of that treacherous mound, along a path of wild grass. The ascent was steep, but not gruelling. There was a deep, undefinable sense of exultation which filled me with a sense of purpose, allowing me to crest the hill with little effort. When I turned to gaze upon the township below me, the mist had returned, blanketing the scene below. There was nothing to see, other than the grass at my feet, and the mighty church above me. I approached the monstrosity, straining to catch a glimpse of its topmost spires, 
It was composed of vast, onyx stones, each the reflection of its neighbour, entirely free of embellishment. The façade lacked windows or any other kind of aperture, save a simple Gothic archway at the base, beyond which a set of double doors awaited me. A shiver travelled along the length of my spine, as I approached that formidable entrance. The doors were ajar, and I hesitated, as the unabashed darkness within called to me. I wiped a bead of sweat from my brow, and stepped into the archway. As per Deirdre's message, I discarded my clothes, and shuddered as my bare flesh met the chilly November air, if it was November, in silent Nunwich. I crossed the threshold. That the building atop the mound wasn't a church or cathedral, I am now positive. For hours I wandered through its empty halls and deserted corridors, shrouded as I was by that interminable darkness. I cannot be certain I saw anything with my eyes, but I can say with absolute conviction that some dormant region of my primitive brain perceived images and sensations beyond comprehension, and it wasn't long before I began to interact with them. Soon enough, I observed the spontaneous birth of luminous shapes in the void, gathering into a mass of intent. The apparitions approached me, and somehow I was told they had been summoned to carry me up into the inexplicable heights, beyond the realm of darkness, to a place of light and wonder. My naked body acquired a phosphorescent glow, as the seemingly sentient objects surrounded and lifted me beyond the reach of the other things now forming in the darkness. I heard strange, dissonant cries of frustration, as the dark ones, in vain, clutched at my ascending frame. I was swiftly transported to a precipitous ledge, beyond which I glimpsed a wall of vines. The luminous shapes faded into the blackness surrounding me, but my body remained positively charged, my flesh continuing to glow, illuminating the wall ahead of me. I knew I had to climb it, and, instinctively, I knew I wasn't the first to climb it, that perhaps it wasn't the first time I had climbed it. But all too quickly, my skin was losing its radiance, and, aware of the malevolent, dark ones in the shadows, I commenced the climb. And up I went, higher and higher into the unknown, driven by a powerful fear of the dark. To attempt to describe that ascent now is akin to describing one's birth. We know of our births, but unlike our first steps or the muttering of our first words, the memory of birth belongs to a being unfamiliar to us, a being evacuated from a cavern of darkness. And as I clung to those ancient vines, I became that being, fleeing the shadows, gasping for life. When at last I reached the chamber, for that's what it was, a large, brightly illuminated space, I collapsed, tumbling onto the cold stone floor. My heart thumped in my chest, my breathing erratic. The dark ones returned to the pit, their exacerbated moans forever etched into my memory. Gaining composure, I dragged myself up in order to view the chamber in more detail. In the centre of the open space, a still, opal pool caught my eye, 
its mirror-like surface reflecting the ancient, featureless walls surrounding it. A single beam of light fell from above, striking the delicate surface of the water. The Skywell, just as it had appeared in the handwritten booklet. But there were no others in attendance. Beside the pool, I saw another familiar item—a briefcase, exactly like the one I pulled from the surf, though much less time-worn. Pieces of the puzzle were falling into place. I edged closer, that ever-present sense of homecoming devouring my senses. As I neared the pool, visions of decadent Persian bathhouses entered my mind, figures submerged, thrashing about in unbridled opulence. But the sight before my eyes wasn't that of extravagance, rather that of the simple bare aspect of the abyss, a black, featureless void, eager to receive me. And I saw that the dark water had received others too, eleven in total. I counted each and every floating body, pale and lifeless, and uncannily still, as if frozen in time. Those familiar faces looked up at me from the sky well, their expressions blank. Fate had received them, a fate determined by a belated attendee. Was that me? Or had some other cult member abandoned the children of the Skywell in the seventies? In any event, what was the purpose of this otherworldly ritual? But in my heart, I knew I was number twelve. Those letters had only ever been meant for me. Somehow, I was a member of that elusive group, and I had to join my family in that water, had to know what they knew. And so, unthinkingly, I clutched the briefcase and stepped into the water. I sank like a stone. It was a curious sensation, not unlike the impression of falling we sometimes perceive moments after falling asleep. But this fall was indefinite, a plunge deep into the depths of a mind of some sort, a tunnel of memories, a catalogue of moments, a collective consciousness. The briefcase disappeared, and I was no longer aware of anything in the physical sense. I was simply a disembodied cell, a neuron, transmitting a message of unknown significance. Myriad memories assailed me, images of far-flung destinations and friendly faces, drink water, tusk, grandad, myself. It was as though I had merged with the children of the Skywell, our experiences fused in an involuntary attempt to understand or overcome something. The power of our combined experiences grew exponentially, forming an expanding sphere of purpose, until, quite abruptly, the bubble burst. I awoke with a start in my room at the Black Bull Inn—a marvellous nightmare, one for the dream diary, if only. But when I returned home the following morning, there was another letter waiting for me—one final letter. The penmanship was different, though. It didn't belong to Deirdre, and the envelope was new, crisp. I opened it without hesitation. It read, Dear Martin, This is going to be difficult to explain. Please bear with me. 
as a member of the defense, it is my duty to protect the being we refer to as Marie. Marie is all things, earth and its many life-forms, Nanich and the Onyx Tower. The Sky Well allows us to communicate with her directly. It's a blessing, but it's also a vulnerability. The darkness that dwells in the bowels of the Onyx Tower wishes to eliminate her, to smother all living things. And so we defend her. We plunge into the pool and force the darkness to retreat. But our efforts thrust us into the past, to begin the search for the Onyx Tower anew, to drop into the Sky Well over and over again. It's a strange, convoluted road, my friend. But the defense is the linchpin. As long as we continue to seek the Onyx Tower, Marie will continue to live, ensuring the survival of all things. I hope you understand the implications. I eagerly await our next revolution. Yours, M. I glanced up at the clock on the wall. There, beneath the giant hands ticking inexorably forward, I observed the date. September 3rd, 2015. Two days before I departed for my trip to Northumberland, the very trip in which I had discovered Cove and the briefcase. I didn't want to believe it, but it all made sense. The briefcase and its contents were simply a means by which to jog my memory. Memories of Nanich and the Onyx Tower. The letters that had so perplexed me had been meant for me, withheld for decades by the members of the defense, patiently awaiting my return. And that last letter, the handwriting so familiar, was penned by me, a man out of time. I had become an instrument of our continued survival, the survival of the human race. I was a gatekeeper, a proprietor of the world of men, both living and dead, a member of the defense. And so, I finally understood the words of Deirdre, that fateful verse. When she fell from the sky, she shattered the stratosphere. Like rain she poured, as life we formed. When she fell from the sky, she lived to climb again. She built the well, and now we rise again. <laughs>